You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. It is Friday, November the 12th, and I am sitting just outside the press room balcony here at Cheltenham, uh, overlooking a magnificent scene. A little bit of early drizzle has just dried up at the moment. We're set fair for three great days of the Paddy Power meeting. Later in this programme, I will be going far beyond Cheltenham because I'll be talking to Charlie Sheila, who is the chair of the newly formed Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. Um, you might have seen a short excerpt of the interview I, I carried out with him on NBC Sports during the Breeders' Cup coverage. You get the, the full Monty today, and he talks most interestingly about the um, future of the sport and its, its integrity. And with that in mind, I'll also be talking in a few moments about the issue that we touched upon yesterday, which was the raid on the premises in Ireland and, and getting Lydia's thoughts on that. Lydia is alongside me. Um, I think for the first time since we've been doing this podcast, which is a, a bit of a treat as we overlook the home of jump racing, Lydia. It's gorgeous here, isn't it? Whenever I come to Cheltenham, you sort of end up gazing around and sort of seeing the, the countryside and the way that it, it, it forms a, they call it a natural amphitheatre, isn't it? Is that what <laughs> Alistair Down always used to call it? A natural amphitheatre. But it is though, and uh, we're looking forward to three great days of racing here. Shall we get the bad out of the way first? Yeah. Um, when, when is it an issue that we have two runner races for for good novice chases when does it become an issue and when can we just shrug it off and go well these things happen not many good horses i think it's a drip 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 thing and i think there will come a tipping point and i think we might be somewhere near it actually i think increasingly uh the fans of the sport are not enjoying it they're not necessarily tolerating it there's a piece in today's racing post from colin horde from the horse race betters forum saying that they would like to see better more levy generating races moved into the itv slots I think there are, there's, there's lo- so many different things playing a part here. Ground is one element of it. I do, I do accept that we've got unseasonably non-autumn slash winter ground at the moment, and that will be holding some people back from running their horses. I mean, Brave Man's Game would have been an example last weekend. Paul Nichols actively wanted to run that horse. He's been out already. He just didn't want to run him in the circumstances of Wincanton. I think it's the collectivisation of a lot of talent into few hands. I think that that is an issue. And I think it is the steady effect of if you have your horses trained in Ireland, um, that at every level you will get more return for running your horses at each level. And I think all of those things are coalescing and starting to move us towards that critical tipping point, I think. So there has been the let's rip up the programme book and rewrite it line trotted out several times over the last couple of weeks. If you do that, how do you do it and who writes it? That's my issue. There is nobody. I mean, the, one of the key problems that racing has is that there is no chief executive of horse racing, is there? There's a chief executive of the Race Course Association. There's a leader of the, the horsemen. There's the chief executive of the British Horse Racing Authority. None of them alone has the authority to be able to envisage that. Um, and so in whose benefit will it be ripped up and rewritten? I think 
we started with a very good program. We ha we have the the skeleton of a good program. I think we can make some sensible adjustments, but to think that we can do that immediately, I think, would be foolish. I think there's some things that can be done in the short term, and then as you see the effect, hopefully, of those um, short term uh, changes and tweaks coming forward, you might be able to then have a sort of five year, ten year plan about what you might want it to look like. But it is going to require some cooperation and an acceptance that for the greater good some individuals are going to lose out. Uh, who might those individuals be do you think? Well certain race courses uh, would be one and um, some of the elite trainers maybe because they're not going to have the proliferation of races available to them that I think they currently do have. Do you think it's the case that trainers mind more nowadays running horses against each other than, than they used to? I don't know because I, I wasn't, you know, I, I can't. I'm not. I wasn't around before long enough ago to the good old days that we we're always told about. You know, the ones before we had anything we to do with horse remember, racing. We can remember the reasonably good old days, can't <laughs> so we? So, when are you dating the reasonably good old I days? I don't know. Eighties, I suppose. Eighties, nineties. And so this would be would play into the argument of the cyclicalness of Ireland, Anglo-Irish power balance, maybe, and you know when Britain was in the ascendancy and maybe had you know more um, top-flight trainers, and and the, there was a whole proliferation of talent or a better spread of talent. Interestingly, much maligned though he is sometimes for the way that he campaigns his horses. Somebody like Willie Mullins, for example, will quite often run three Grade One novice chases against each other. And the other thing that Willie Mullins will do is run his horses over non-ideal trips. He will run his horses when they are ready to run and he isn't, doesn't much mind en route to a, a target later on in the season, whether that's two miles, two and a half miles or three. Does that say something then about the programme in Britain relative to the programme in Ireland? I think it does. I mean, Ireland has a much tighter programme and uh, that it, you can't choose really you, you have to run your horse when it's when it's ready to run you know the idea that I mean for example I, I hate to pick on Nicky Henderson I'm only doing it because he said this recently about Chantry House he was making a plea to the race goers there at Sandown about how we need these races these in intermediate races well there was one at Carlisle there's the Charlie Hall you know there's a loads of different races that, that a horse like Chantry House could have run in and I think there are too many of them and you know there was a intermediate chase at Newton Abbott as well all of these races had small fields okay let's push on to what we can enjoy over the next two or three days because tomorrow's big race the Paddy Power Gold Cup has a field of 20 mm -hmm. so I mean in complete contrast everyone's up for, everyone seems to be up for it this year yeah absolutely it should be a, a fantastic contest and uh, you know the identity of the field has momentarily got out of my head so you can, well, well I turn <laughs> I can, to that page, I can start I can start playing for time by telling you that uh, Nichols has got two very interesting runners neither of whom have run for him before Laylor who's been the favourite for this race for a long time and simply the bet is going to be ridden by Briony Frost I can tell you that Protectorat is the um, putative class act as things stand at the moment um, ASO is in there Paint the Dream is likely to contribute to a strong early gallop I would have thought that will be um, carved out by last year's hero Cool Cody was it last year or the year before I can't remember anyway he won the race before either which way and I fancy Caribbean Boy and that's all I can tell you at this that, stage that's, that's pretty good are you going to confess that I, I helped you there by showing you the field halfway through the uh, sentence uh, possibly <laughs> good, good, good for you uh, right well um 
Protectorat seems to me to be very exciting. He's got the right profile for this kind of race. I think he's going to move forward here. Paint the Dream would fall into the same kind of category. I ultimately wonder whether he might lead a little bit further than this. Caribbean boy really frustrated me last season. I'm not sure. I think he might need a flat track. I don't think this, this place is his bag in any way whatsoever. OK, well, I thought he ran well enough at the Cheltenham Festival when no British horse could get within Kiwi yeah. of winning a race. So I thought, I thought he, he ran well enough here and a freshness angle and a good ground angle really were my what I was going for. I, I had backed him that day and I thought that there was never any moment I held the, most, the smallest smidgen of hope, even of getting paid each way. Okay, alrighty. Um, is there a horse that you do like in the race? Uh, yes, I think. I mean, I think I do like Protectorat. I think he's got a, a, a very strong chance. I can. I mean, obviously, I can see the um, the case for for Leila in terms of moving to that yard and some tweaks that help put together the kind of form he showed as a novice chaser and a novice hurdler. And he was, you know, very, very good indeed for the for the Woolacots. I don't think Zanza quite jumps well enough for me. Um, so yeah, I think Protectorat, frankly. And which horses outside that feature race are you most looking forward to seeing this weekend? I mean, Dan Skelton seems to have a whole glut of horses that we're looking forward to. Third time lucky. I heard Ruby Walsh on your Road to Cheltenham show eulogising about him yesterday. Yes, and it will be interesting to see how that goes. We've got four. We are treated with four novice chase runners here, so he's got three rivals to beat. Uh, he looks very exciting indeed. The fluency with which he took to the course and distance um, here last time was quite taking. The well-beaten runner-up trained by Gordon Elliott has since gone out and won, admittedly, against a horse, Bally Adam, who doesn't seem to have taken defences that well. Um, he's up against horses that are very, very experienced over fences in Captain Tomcat and Mick Pasta, and they finished one and two at Wincan at the weekend uh, if there's going to be a horse of star quality that's going to carry that through to the spring festivals the later part of the season you would think it's going to be third time lucky albeit I think Captain Tonkat will benefit from going left-handed Sporting John is another intriguing one isn't he returning in the handicap hurdle of the 250 isn't everyone going to do this this season work out that all the novice chases and the, and the senior chases are too difficult and therefore just try and make their horses into stay as hurdle horses well I mean that's what they're doing with latest exhibition isn't it they've decided that he hasn't really Really taken. He doesn't attack his fences in the way that he attacked his hurdles and saw him finish a close-up. Was second, was it, in the um, Albert Barlett a couple of seasons ago yeah, behind he'd, Monkfish? He'd have probably attacked them all right last year if he hadn't had Monkfish in front of him every time. Well, also, he? I also think he's. it's kind of disguised. I think he must go left-handed. I think he is a several pounds worse horse when going right-handed. So I, 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 if they were to switch him back next season, I would feel that there are some good targets that can be won over fences related to exhibition. Nonetheless, I can understand, for the reasons you've just articulated, why they might want to go for this division this season. But Sporting John runs in the listed handicap hurdle at 2.50 tomorrow at Cheltenham. As far as this afternoon's action is concerned, Lydia, um, there's the usual Friday fair. We've talked about the Mydrogo race. He's only got one rival to beat. Uh, elsewhere, it, it's pretty competitive. I thought the two-mile chase was very interesting with um, two blazing front runners, edited Ajit and Stolen Silver. I wondered if it might set up for one of the closers. Yes, um... Which one were you thinking of? Magic well, Saint? is Capo it? Toy was the one that I was most right, interested okay. in. We heard from his trainer on the podcast yesterday. Full brother to Aplutar. He's also going to like... Bandoran's also going to like yeah. it, isn't he? Um, you know, I know everyone's sort of going, mm, it's Bandoran. But nonetheless, if you're going to get a really strongly run race, that is the kind of thing that he really enjoys. I thought Stolen Silver will run well. I take your point, he could be hassled for the lead. But I thought he sh showed a, an ability to be able to um, give his running without being bothered by the horses around him. OK, before we um, finish and move on to other things, I did want to ask you about 
um, the news yesterday about the, the raid on the unlicensed premises in, in Ireland. We've not had much further news from the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board, and I don't think we're going to until, uh, until they've got something else to tell us about the identity of the individual concerned, the identity of the trainers who were caught up in it, and the identity, most importantly, of the banned substances that were found there. And until we know all those three things, it's very difficult to really develop this further. I tend to agree. And in the meantime, it's all smoke. And we don't know whether there is a fire that we need to be concerned about. And it is a, it's a bit similar to the conversation that was played out between Jim Bolger and Aidan O'Brien, with Aidan O'Brien saying, you know, you know, show me the connection to horse racing, show me what you're talking about. And Jim Bolger not going to the Oroctus, um, choosing not to come forward. I do understand why, as we discussed at the time, because there are, there are um, slander issues there involved but nonetheless we I think in order to be able to grasp this issue and understand what what is going on we need some more facts I think we do and uh, uh, there's been so much sort of circumstantial conversation around this over the last year but relatively little that is that is concrete that can make you think right well horse racing has its house in order and is policing itself as best it possibly can it's it's damaging, isn't it? While, while there's so much um, speculation, circumstantial, two and two is five, all of that kind of thing. That is damaging to horse racing. So this need, we need to get some facts out as quickly as possible. At the same time, it is unlikely where there is um, an industry where large amounts of money are involved that human beings, what, being what they are, wouldn't try to push the envelope in certain ways. And that, there is no way that that uh, particular um, likelihood falls in one particular jurisdiction and another. I mean, clearly, if, if a jurisdiction's um, doping regulations and oversight and scrutiny aren't up to scratch, then they would be more vulnerable. But everywhere is vulnerable to that kind of practice. And what this is showing is that unlicensed premises are being raided and tested and that has always been a potential loophole for those who are seeking to cheat mm, absolutely and that was a loophole they closed as of april wasn't mm. it of, of this year in in ireland um britain I mean, belatedly but they've done it yeah absolutely and britain only a little bit before yeah. that so um these are loopholes that are being closed down and it's good to be seeing on the plus side it is good to be seeing some action but we also need some facts So as we talk about the integrity of the sport and really preserving its sanctity from a point of view of, of horses running on a, a level playing field, it seems well worth talking about the Horse Racing Integrity and, and Safety Authority, which is set to come into being no later than the 1st of July next year and should really, if it works as planned, revolutionise the way not just uh, that American racing is policed, but the way that people think about medicating horses before they, before they go to the races. Um, Charlie Sheila, who has significant experience as an attorney, but also as a, a sports administrator, uh, is the chair of HISA. And during my trip to the Breeders' Cup for NBC Sports, I sat down and talked to him at some length. And I began by asking him what exactly was at stake here. Well, HISA is essential for horse racing to survive and thrive into the future. The public has a right to demand and to know that this sport is doing everything reasonably possible they can to protect the horses and to protect the jockeys. And the fans of horse racing and the betters deserve to know that the sport is being conducted fairly and enforcement of the rules is effective, it's fair, 
and it is, uh, occurs within a reasonable period of time. So we believe if those things come into being through HISA, and that's our mission, then the sport will be very much improved. It'll be a rising tide that, that raises all boats. How low is the bar, do you think, in terms of public trust in the sport now after the last two or three years? Well, there, there have been some issues that you're well aware of, but I think this is a time in our history, an inflection point where all institutions are being looked at harder and held to account. And horse racing is no different. And horse racing, and most people in this industry are actually welcoming the accountability that the public is demanding. And the public is demanding, hey, we need to have fewer horses dying out there, either in workouts or during races. They are demanding that, hey, this needs to be done on a drug-free basis. And horses who are too ill to not have medicine shouldn't be out there competing on the track. So what we want to do, as many institutions are doing, is rebuild trust. And we think HISA is the best way to do it so that there is a uniform set of policies across the entire country. And whether you're racing in Oklahoma or California or Kentucky, you know there's one set of rules and they're being fairly and evenly applied. You, you say drug-free. That is quite a, a total statement. Um, would you accept that medicating horses is always going to be a necessary part of training them or are you trying to eradicate the whole idea of medication? You raise a great point Nick and what I'm saying is those drugs which are illegal under any circumstances things like testosterone because they're strictly performance enhancing that we should be drug free from that. Now look there's a place for medication of horses just as there's a place for medication of humans but that should be occurring, A, only for uh, conditions which require it, B, the minimum amount of medicine required to treat that condition, and C, what the Act talks about, with a couple, with exception to, is not applying, not having any medicines within 48 hours of the race at, at a minimum, because if you're not well enough to compete medicine-free, there's a real question, why should you be out there in the first place as a horse? Because unlike people, horses can't accept the risks of going out there and competing and say, hey, I'm going to take this and go and compete. People can do that. Horses don't. They just get injected. They don't know what they've been injected with, and they go out and give it their all because they're competitors. So is this more than just about policing the sport? Is this about changing the sport's culture? Are you asking horsemen to think more carefully about the way they train horses? We are, we are asking them to think more carefully about how they train horses and about how they take care of the horses who they have the responsibility for keeping safe and healthy. And we do hope we do hope with though, uh, you know, not impugning what has gone on in the past, but we are hoping for a cultural shift where the health of the horse becomes more of a, 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 more of a focus than it has been in the past, that, and that only people who are just bound and determined to cheat no matter what will be, attempt to cheat these days because they know that there will be credible deterrence and there will be justice served. What proportion do you think of the sports practitioners have been bound and determined to cheat, in your words? You know, it, it's a great question, but I'd only be speculating with the answer. When we uh, were involved in the Mitchell Report and coming up with um, 
estimates of how bad the doping problem was in baseball in the late 2000s, we heard a lot of estimates, but we weren't able to uh, confirm any of them. So I, I won't give you an exact number, but I will tell you, we believe currently it is too many, and we believe that with USADA coming in and developing a world-class program, we believe we can drive those numbers down. And there's really two pieces of this, and you, you sort of alluded to that before. One is the performance enhancing piece, right, to try to get those people who are finishing, those horses second and third, mm -hmm. get them to, to, to win the race. The other is at the other end of, of the sport where you have horses that are running for uh, lower amounts, and the question is, can you get them out one or two more times and earn a little more revenue or have them sold or whatever. And we're worried about those horses just as much because they're the ones who sometimes there's an economic incentive to shoot them up of something they shouldn't be shot of and, and sent out there. So those, so we're trying to address this at, at, at both economic ends of the sport because at the end of the day, a dead horse is a dead horse and that's what we can't have. You mentioned USADA, that's the United States Anti-Doping Agency. We hear about their work with Olympic athletes all around the world, uh, an organization of, of great repute. Is it reasonable to anticipate that they can apply their principles in human athletes to equine athletes? We've been, had a lot of discussions with them and we believe that USADA can and is in the process of developing a very uh, effective program. There, are, there is a lot of transference from the human to equine anti-doping world, but there's also a fair amount of, uh, of differences too. And USADA has brought in uh, an, an expert who has been involved in horse racing and anti-doping in both Australia and Great Britain. And so we are giving effect to that. What we're also doing in developing these rules though is we are seeking, we've been actively seeking and obtaining input uh, by various major racing constituencies. So we're trying to make this rules development process very inclusive, get a lot of uh, input from industry so that we can come up with something that works. It won't be perfect right out of the gate, and so we'll correct as we go, We'll make and, and we will hope to continuously improve the program. But we think USADA, coupled with our expert committee, coupled with all of uh, the experts who are now uh, and have been giving us input can come up with a very sound program. Charlie, the conversation about drug use, medication use, call it what you will in horse racing, is often centered not so much on what you would describe as cheating, but on pushing the envelope, pushing the boundary, a gray area. Do you think that Heiser will render that gray area non-existent? Will matters become black and white? You either are cheating or you are not cheating? Well, I'd hesitate to go that far in every case because we all know in this day and age it's hard to make anything completely black and white. But what I think we can say is, number one, we will have a uniform set of rules that uh, for anti-doping that will apply across the entire country. So we'll eliminate, eliminate the confusion of, well, is it legal in California but illegal in Kentucky or perhaps legal in Oklahoma? We'll have the same set of penalties across the country. So if so, a, someone who's penalized for a particular violation in California will receive a comparable uh, penalty to someone who's penalized in Maryland. And we will have a very clear set of what is and is not prohibited. And when meds, 
which have therapeutic uses can and cannot be used. So we hope to add a lot of clarity to the rules. Uh, there's going to be a, a considerable amount of time where we need to educate the trainers and others who will be implicated by these rules. But yes, we do think we can make this much cleaner. Um, but, you know, in this day and age, nothing is ever free from doubt. Uh, this conversation can't take place without mentioning the most high-profile case of medication violation or alleged medication violation that's happened not just this year but in any year because the Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit tested positive uh, and the reputation uh, of his trainer has been debated long and hard throughout the season. In your opinion, had Heiser been in place for the Kentucky Derby in 2021, would we be in this situation now? And I'm not just talking about the overage of medication, I'm talking about the legal process that's ensued. Yeah. Well, these questions like, if John Wilkes Booth hadn't shot Lincoln, what would have happened in 1865? There's obviously no way of knowing. So, um, so But you can realistically speculate from the research that you've done. Well, what I can say is this, what I can say is this, we would not have had the confusion over different sets of rules in different jurisdictions. We also uh, are, will be putting in a process for adjudications so that the adjudications shouldn't span over months and maybe even to years. We're talking more about days and we're talking about weeks because when something gets dragged out like this and the rules are confusing and they may be different in dur different jurisdictions, the public quite under understandably throws up its hands and says, I don't know what to think. All I know is that the process seems pretty screwed up to me. Mm -hmm. We'll have a consistent process, consistent set of rules, and we'll apply it consistently to, across every person and across all the states. So that's got to be an improvement over the current situation. Why do you think some states have pushed back against this? Why has there been opposition to this? It seems, seems so logical. Well, look, there's always resistance to change. And there are some states who have a good faith belief that they're doing a very good job right now at protecting equine safety. And we want to work with those states because we don't have a monopoly on good ideas. We believe it's frankly much easier and better to incorporate, steal a good idea and put it into our program than to think of one ourselves. But, and, and, they, and there's just the understandable um, reluctance to turn a certain level of, of, of power over to a new agency that nobody knows anything about. So one of the things we've been doing is talking to the state racing commissions, talking to the various constituencies, show them that we don't wear horns on our heads or anything like that, and that the, but the most important thing is that we have the same objectives they do, to make the horses safer, to make the races fair. And so I think over time, over time, uh, what level of, of uh, discord there is is going to diminish. And at the same time, I should note, we've had an awful lot of enthusiasm for HISA uh, from many, many quarters of the industry who see this as really an opportunity um, to you know, recapture the high ground when it comes to equine safety and when it comes to the fairness and integrity of the sport. What would you say to the naysayers now? What is, what is your sales pitch if somebody says to you, I'm sorry, I don't buy this. This is going to make no difference at all. I would say we're releasing a lot of our rules next week on our website. Look at those rules. If you have criticisms, tell us about it. And we will we'll try to address those criticisms if it makes sense. We're getting criticisms now. Some 
uh, and we can't address them all because some say do this and the others say don't do this, right? But what we are trying to do is, uh, is steer by our North Star, which is the safety of the horses and the integrity of the game, and come up with the rules that are designed to most effectively and efficiently uh, achieve that outcome. And we will listen to many nays any naysayer who has constructive comments, and we will try to build you in as part of the process. And what would you say to those who perhaps aren't fans of horse racing, who would say, Charlie, you're too far gone. This sport's rotten to the core. It's throwing up drug positives all over the shop. Overage is everywhere. Hell, they even look to chuck out the Kentucky Derby winner. What would you say to them on the basis of your research and your now knowledge of the sport? What I would say is give us a chance to see if we can improve the sport to the point where you're now comfortable with it. You got to remember this is not some recent uh, you know, affair that, it, it, that, that humans have conducted. Horse racing is over 6,500 years old. Um, there has to be a reason why it has survived that long. It has to be something that helps to improve the human experience. And as someone who rode horses as a kid, I can tell you uh, that the relationships between horses and humans are really interesting things, and they're really enriching experiences. So I would say give horse racing and give the love of horses another chance. They are magnificent animals. They love to compete, and they create an exciting experience, whether on a racetrack, whether you're in a field somewhere, or whether they're just walking around. Give it one more chance. All right, it's Friday, so it is time for the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Rankings Update, and what an update this week, off the back of a frenetic fortnight of international fun and frolics, and of course all the delights of the Breeders' Cup. I'm going to do the top 20 this week, and you'll see why in a moment, because I don't think we've had an edition quite as dynamic as this since we began this segment. So at 20, down five is the Japanese star Gran Allegria. At 19, down 10, he disappointed in the Breeders' Cup sprint. That's Jackie's Warrior. 18 is Incentivize, who didn't pass muster really in the Melbourne Cup, as trainer Peter Moody thought he might, down four. 17, down nine is Tanawa, who retires on rather a low note. 16 down five is Hot Rod Charlie, who offered little in resistance in the final furlong of the Breeders' Cup Classic. 15 down two, in spite of that victory in the Tenno Show Autumn, is the Japanese horse Euphoria. At 14 down four, the St. Ledger winner Hurricane Lane. 13 down one is Trushan, who picked up the Cartier Award for Stayer of the Year. 12 up nine, the creditable Breeders' Cup Classic runner-up Medina Spirit. 11 up 11, he bows out on a glorious high. Breeders' Cup mile hero Space Blues, he's off to stud. 10 up 7 is our old friend Zaki. He had to miss the Cox Plate, but he bounced back under world number one James McDonald in the McKinnon Stakes in fine style. 9 up 31 of the really prominent horses, the biggest mover of the week. That is Life is Good, who just obliterated his field in the Breeders' Cup. Dirt Mile and is bound for a clash in the Pegasus Stakes with Nick's Go. After Life is Good at 8. Down four is essential quality. The Kentucky Derby fourth occupied third spot in the Breeders' Cup Classic. At seven, up 17 places, the Melbourne Cup heroine, very elegant, back in the top 10. Steady at six is Mishrif as he limbers up for a bid for a second Saudi Cup 
in the spring. Five up two is Nature Strip off the back of another excellent sprinting performance down under. Four down one is Baid, who shares 2,049 points with the third place Palace Pier, only separated by um, decimals. At two, knocked off the top spot as he heads to stud is the Cartier Horse of the Year, St. Mark's Basilica, and he's knocked off top spot by the horse who will be the United States of America's Horse of the Year, Nixco, the brilliant Breeders' Cup Classic winner, James Willoughby. Well, Nick, um, you are as keen an observer of the international scene as I am. I am still tingling from this meeting. I just felt there's been so much negativity in horse racing for so many years, and particularly aimed at the Breeders' Cup and the problems American racing has had and still has to some extent, but is trying to uh, rid itself of, of being held against it, being uh, a millstone around its neck, really. This to surely anyone but the most one-eyed, jingoistic, non-American observer of horse racing was the most fantastic celebration of the racehorse uh, in all its diverse forms, dirt, turf, sprinting, staying, two-year-olds older. It was absolutely fantastic. And whilst I'd said last week that I'd hoped all the uh, champions and potential champions, those with the best CVs, did not disappoint. Well, some of them did, but still enough of them delivered and the meeting reached its zenith with the type of performance that you just yearn to see from a racehorse where not only do you see a really thoroughly dominating performance with the winner going away and so full of zest and athleticism crossing the line. But the right horses finishing second, third and fourth, an absolute glut of grade one stakes winners there, then pulling clear of the rest. So whether you look at racing intellectually or whether you just are a, a visual learner, it was a race to just completely satisfy literally everybody that watched it. And it rounded off a fantastic meeting. And Nick Luck, you were part of that. Oh, well, it was just a, a pleasure again to be a, a small part of that and to be there at Del Mar. As you rightly point out, James, the Breeders' Cup meeting can have it all, but if the Classic disappoints, it leaves you a little bit underwhelmed. The Classic really has to deliver, and, and it did in, in the shape of Nick's go. Of course, what is set up beautifully is the clash between Nick's go and life is good over an intermediate distance for the pair of them in the Pegasus World Cup in Florida. What a great idea that race was. <laughs> I knew it all along. Yeah. He just had us fooled for a bit. Yeah. And life is good. Yeah. You introduced him in the, the rundown of the top 20 as being the biggest mover amongst the, uh, the top ranked horses. But what a performance that was in the Breeders' Cup mile. And of course, it, it preceded Dirt Mile. Sorry. It preceded the sprint. And of course, it made it look like Jackie's Warrior only had to kind of reproduce their earlier running to run away with that race as well. Jackie's Warrior didn't really like being breathed on early on, it seems to be, and folded very tamely. But the fraction's life is good. It was one of those races, we can all think of them if we've been a fan of American racing over the years, where you turn to your companion or whoever you are, you're watching with, in my case, my Janet, and said, well, you know, that one's gone way too fast. What is going on? Um, and only for, for you to see the horse turn for home, change its legs and find another gear. It was absolutely electrifying, that horse's performance. And he's as good as advertised for Todd Pletcher. And actually, I would say this in, in, in a guarded way, which is 
Bob Buffett's ex-horses, generally speaking, have there aren't that many examples of them, but the ones that, that, that I've noticed over the years do generally give their running for the next trainer. He sources a heck of a lot of massive equine talent. I think that should be re remembered when people are casting aspersions over the, the absolute um, height that some of these horses can reach. Should we talk about the star trainer of the Breeders' Cup, the treble winning yeah. Charlie Appleby, whose record is now just absolutely ridiculous. And Space Blues is a smashing little horse and just misses out on a top 10 finish as he rounds off his, his career. I wanted to talk to you a little bit, James, about the pecking order of the Appleby three-year-olds going into their four-year-old season. He's going to have right. Hurricane Lane, Adar, and Yabir at his disposal next year. And there's been a, a serious changing of the guard in recent weeks amongst that trio. Absolutely right. So let's recap. So Hurricane Lane stands at 14 after giving his running in the arc, uh, looking like he might win it to my eye, uh, halfway up the straight, but not quite going on to do it. Adayar, the seemingly brilliant King George winner on the day. Now, our computer system rated his performance 130 after he won that race. That race is down to 126. That's quite a big drop. Uh, four points in such a short space of time. He's now languishing at 28. And Yibir, who doesn't convince at all in the run as a top-class horse, a bit of gawky, looks to lack kind of elite middle pace for a middle-distance horse, now up to 29 from 87 following his Breeders' Cup turf win. and Four group race wins for him. And what these horses all have in common is, well, a trainer that I have long believed in, in Charlie Appleby. And it's ironic, Nick, that the one doesn't like to be, I am from Yorkshire, so allow me to be chippy uh, for a little bit, which is the two things people have taken the most um, umbrage over it with uh, TRC Global Rankings is the lofty positions of Dubawi and Charlie Appleby. So given Dubawi became the first sire in history to have three Breeders' Cup winners, and Charlie Appleby has now proven to anyone but the most ridiculously biased individual that he is a match for any trainer in the world with uh, his uh, relentless targeting of top-notch racers all over the planet and successful targeting, I, I might add. And to answer your question, as I sometimes do eventually, um, I am firmly behind Hurricane Lane of these horses. Um, I'm not just saying that as a rankings uh, meister, but I just think that he's got a bit more dimensions to his game. He's also four out of six. And the other two were when he lost two front shoes in the derby and then his defeat in the arc. That's a pretty good CV. And with Adayar, now we've got this idea that he wasn't very good before his peak and he hasn't been very good afterwards. And if we cast our eye down the rankings to the 40s, we'll find two Aidan O'Brien trained fillies, Love and Snowfall. And I think it's fair to say with both those animals now that they are shining examples of the fact that horses are never so bad as on their bad days, but they're also never quite so good as on their good ones either. And the answer is somewhere in between. And that's why, I, to answer your question, I favour Hurricane Lane. Because his in-between of his performances is a damn sight better than the other Appleby horses. Adayar's 
it, before he became good, the Lingfield Derby trial, that being uh, he looked like an absolute slug in that race, and, and since his disappointment. And Yibir, we've got to remember where Yibir has come from. Appleby's trained him brilliantly to get up to this level. But I think in terms of natural ability as an athlete, I think Hurricane Lane tops all the other Appleby horses easily, in my view. So Dubawi can't quite knock the late deep impact off the top spot, though he is the leading active sire in the list now. Charlie Appleby retains his position at the top, I mean, strengthens his position at the top, but not even yeah. William Buick can unseat James McDonald, who, as he told us uh, on Wednesday's podcast, is having the most ridiculous time of it. He's riding the three best-known horses in Australia, Zaki, Nature Strip, uh, and Very Elegant, all of whom have shone and have got top 20 um, positions. What did you make of McDonald's assertion that Very Elegant and Nature Strip might, might travel? I love this news. Now, of the two, I see Nature Strip as being essentially quite an Australian horse in racing character. He's got tons of early speed. He's front-loaded his ability. And he likes to run around the bend. He's brilliant bend runner. And the last part of the race is not his strongest race. And we saw that a bit with Black Caviar um, in uh, Royal Ascot, in that these stiff European-British tracks, sometimes not ideal for a horse like Nature Strip. But what I think is very, very interesting, and I cannot wait to see, is I think Very Elegant is exactly the opposite type of horse. I think the reason that we saw her in her pomp in the Melbourne Cup is it's just about the only time, I know she's run the race before and, and disappointed, but she wasn't in quite such a, well, uh, the same form. It's the only time she's had a proper test of stamina. It's the only time she's really had an end-to-end -end platform to set up to where she can run at the leaders, close at them and clear away. And I see her being much better suited to European racing than she's ever been to racing in Australasia. So. For that reason, I would love to see her run in some of our best races up here. And we already know that she fits quite snugly with the best of the Europeans from um, her exploits against Adabe. We ought to just touch on the, on the two-year-old from the Breeders' Cup quickly, James. And you mentioned Bob Baffert. His horse Corniche actually impressed our computer more than the Philly Echo Zulu did, which I found quite interesting. Yes, it did. Yeah, I think probably because there was more substance in that race rather than the Phillies race, which is probably, to some extent, a better performance. Now, Cornish by Quality Road, this was probably the interview of the Breeders' Cup. And maybe I don't know if you've got time to talk me all the way through it again. But the, cost of, the, the, the conundrum here is, is, is what will the owner's Speedway stable do with this horse? Because he seems an absolute ready-made Kentucky Derby horse, doesn't he? Yeah, and the owner clearly is very loyal to Bob Baffert, but he recognised the fact that he's not getting points for the Kentucky Derby, so he'd have to sit down and figure it out. And if Churchill Downs don't back down and don't give the horse any points on the road to, to the Derby, the horse won't get in. So he's going to have to get him elsewhere and get him elsewhere soon in order to get him yeah. into the race. That's, that's his conundrum. He can't afford, if he wants to guarantee him a run in the race, he can't afford to wait until mm. there's a possible resolution. You know, Baffert may have, every, may have every reason to believe that his legal team can get this overturned, and that might happen, but the, the clock's right. ticking. That's the issue for the owner, and that's the sort of dilemma that, that he's faced with. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that story develops. I'm, I'm really interested, but I do think he fits very well with um, the classic crop, and I think he, he'll grow and develop still further in terms of ability. I think he's a really likeable horse, Corniche, and I, and I hope... He'll continue on the Kentucky Derby trial right to the race itself.
And it was the Kentucky Derby winner, second and third, who finished second, third and fourth in this year's Breeders' Cup Classic. Finishing where we started, James, with the new world number one on the TRC rankings, Nick's Go. But will he be good enough to turn away life is good at Gulfstream Park if they both turn up, God willing? I hope so. But either way, Nick, I'm not going to make too many predictions at this stage. I just think this is such a satisfying conclusion. It's such a really resolute performance and such a performance that makes so much sense. Even though the classic generation didn't deliver, didn't produce a winner, I don't think anyone can say that they didn't do what we expected beforehand. Yeah, you know, it's fair enough to say um, that essential quality maybe wasn't quite at his best, didn't travel quite as well as he can do. But nonetheless, he still ran a, a heck of a race. The time was super fast as well. It was the biggest buyer speed figure of the entire meeting so it's satisfying from every perspective you can think of and it'll be a long time before i come down from the excitement of watching this meeting i thought it was just fantastic well thanks to james and to charles lydia is still here and has some advice for you i like plan of attack in the cross country i never normally uh, go anywhere near across it's quite a good race this actually it, it isn't really it really is isn't it i mean i think it's going to be tremendously interesting there are some horses that are by no means back numbers in this race and i include plan of attack in that but you know the talk is cheap is in there as well Bucco de flow obviously ran a monster in the grand national yeah talk is cheap now trained by martin keithley Bucco de flow i mean i mean how well did he travel in the grand national yeah. potter's corner for the same ownership he might not be finished yeah absolutely all of those so i think i mean unusually i think the cross-country race is going to be one of the more compelling races of the day and i've gone for diesel dalio who won a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, okay. Is, no. that, is that the argument? No, that's the argument, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 he, he's just a, a very consistent performer in cross-country races. I thought he was the safe, he was the safe one, really, mm -hmm. each way. Mm -hmm. I think Plan of Attack has got the um, tactical speed to be able to stay up there. Uh, and uh, and represents Henry de Bromhead, so there you go. Yeah. And and, and that that really we sort of end this conversation where we started it. That is the, that is a, the theme of this meeting, really. The return of de Bromhead and Elliot. And not necessarily with their A-teams, but to significantly put a marker down. Well, targeting this meeting, it seems to me, much more uh, much more at the forefront of their mind than it than would usually be in the season. I mean, is that your impression as well, that they've actually targeted it much more? For sure. Yeah. And they've had horses running all through the late summer, early autumn, who they can you know, bring here, having had plenty of recent experience and fitness. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Gin Online, who comes up against my Drogo, will be the exact um, example of that. And Precisely. she is very reminiscent of put the kettle on, albeit at half a mile further. I was interested in Dan Skell when he was talking about my Drogo on the podcast a couple of days ago. And he said, yeah, he's been good. He's been good. He's got better schooling. Oh. It wasn't... It, he said he'd never jump badly. But it, he, he wasn't like, oh, yeah, he was electric from day one. But he is a front foot trainer, isn't he? Yeah. Did that, is that what set, set the alarm bells ringing with you? No, because he would say, look, I'll tell you, tell you as it is, there aren't alarm bells. He qualified. He went, no, 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 he's been good. But it, it, it just made me think that it was a learn. And he then went into quite an interesting uh, explanation of how young horses school and how they come on for each schooling session. But that it was definitely a work in progress. Mm. And it wasn't as though... And you could see that from the type of horse he is, can't you? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, he's quite a big... Backwardish yeah. sort of horse. Yeah, he is. So I just wonder if. Well, she's a proper. I, I wouldn't be surprised if no. there was a boil over. Uh, so, so do I. So do I. Uh, uh, she is a proper opponent who's shown a good level of form, who's very experienced, and uh, even though it's a two-runner race, I wouldn't be surprised either if she, she brought her experience and quite high level of ability. Mm. First time out for him over fences and laid it down to him. Um, what time are we on air? 
a good question. I'm hoping it's half 12. Is that right? Yes, so am I. Right. Okay, goodbye. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We will see you again on Monday. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.